Reading from the first chapter of the letter of James. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, those who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious, and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the Word of God. Unlike the ancient world, where mirrors were hard to come by and not exactly clear, we are surrounded by nice, clear mirrors all the time. Bathrooms, elevators, offices, hallways. Everywhere we go, there are mirrors to remind us what we look like. Even so, when someone says to you, I like your tie, or that's a pretty necklace you have on, you look down to see what it is you're wearing. You may have put it on an hour ago. You may have passed a mirror ten minutes ago. But you have to check to see which one you're wearing that day. It's easy to forget what we have on. James, in the letter I just read from, said that people who are hearers of the Word and not doers are like those who look in a mirror and then, upon going away, immediately forget what they look like. If we don't have something to reinforce our memory of what tie we put on or what necklace we have on, we forget which one it is. Hearing the Word without doing the Word causes us to forget who we are. The larger the space between, we, between when we read the Word and hear the Word and when we actually go to do the Word and live the Word, the larger the space between those two things, the more difficult it is to put those things into our lives. And we are at risk of thinking we are someone or something else. Oh, I know who I am. I'm the consumer that the commercials tell me I am. 
I know who I am. I'm the unkind manager that my boss expects me to be. I know who I am. I'm defined by how I look or what I drive or who I spend time with. When we separate ourselves from that mirror, the Word of God, we begin to forget who we are and we start taking on all kinds of other identities. James knows this about us. He knows who we are and he knows how we are. He also knows how to help us remember who we truly are, even when we're away from that mirror. Put these words into action, he says. Do something about them. Live them. Don't be hearers of the word only. Do the word. I can think of very few things that are learned by hearing only. My children are bringing home their homework these days and there's all this math that is so repetitive over and over again. We do basically the same problem, but it's because that's the way you learn to do it. No teacher says 42 plus 16 equals 58. Okay, now you've got that. Let's move on. When my father was teaching me how to tie a necktie, he didn't just say the words of what you're supposed to do. First, he put his arms over my shoulder and he started to tie it around my neck. And then, once I had seen that done a few times, he stood beside me and he tied his tie while I tried to tie my tie and followed his example. Finally, he stopped doing it while I kept doing it so that he could be there when I needed some help. And then for six months, six years, I don't know, for a long time, as I was getting the hang of it, he still was available to help me learn. I don't know why then we act as though Jesus' teachings can be read and, and commented on and then you'll just get them. You, you'll, you just are going to do them without some kind of practice. We expect you to practice your math. We expect you to practice your tying skills. We expect you to practice most everything else in your life. Not just to hear it, but to do it before we expect you to get it all right. When we treat you that way, we forget that humans are prone to look into that mirror and then turn away and forget what we look like, who we are. If we want to live the faith, we have to learn the faith, and we learn it by both hearing it and by doing it. We can't just hear it. We have to practice it. It's not enough to come here and hear from Deuteronomy that we are to leave grains and olives and grapes in the fields for orphans, widows, and aliens. It's not enough to hear that God has said, Cursed be anyone who deprives the alien, the orphan, and the widow of justice. 
We can look religious by coming in here and, and hearing those words and nodding in agreement and then going our own way and doing it however we want to and being however we want to, walking away from this place, forgetting who we are. We can look religious, but James calls us to something more. He calls us to be religious. To have religion that is pure and undefiled, as he says it. To, to have faith that actually does what is read and heard. We come together to praise God with our whole selves, and then we depart from here to praise God with all of our Lives. We're to listen and learn so that we can go and, and do. We, we don't just sing the words of our faith as an act of praise. We live the words of our faith with loving acts. I have a friend who I admire for the way she's able to integrate her faith in the everyday living of her life. She reads and listens to the Word of God and then... She learns it more fully by putting it into practice. And each time she practices these words, she gets better at them, performs them more faithfully. She hears and then she does. With every attempt at practicing her faith, she remembers a little longer who she is as a person of faith. I admired her for that when we were in college together. I admired her for that when she left for Mali, West Africa, in her service as a Peace Corps volunteer. And, and I admired her for that when she worked for Habitat for Humanity and then when she worked for Epworth Children's Home, and I've admired her for that since then. Case Granger continues to learn the faith by taking these words we hear and putting them into practice. As a living illustration of James' teaching that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to care for orphans and widows in their distress, Case will come now and share with us about her experiences at Epworth Children's Home. Good morning. My name is Case. Before moving back to Florence, I worked at Epworth Children's Home in Columbia. People would often ask me about the kids and why were they there. To be honest with you, I never asked any of them, why are you here? I knew more often than not, it was a delicate situation that brought them to live at the children's home. I would just tell people that on any given day, there are around 80 different kids and 80 different stories. But to give you an idea of why some of the kids live at Epworth, I'll tell you about a few of them I met while I was there. There were two precious little redhead kids who came to live at Epworth while I was there. Their story was quite simple. They had lost both their parents. They had grandparents who loved them dearly but were too feeble to care for the energetic five-year-old and the feisty seven-year-old. So they lived at Epworth and the grandparents came faithfully every Sunday to visit. Another young girl came to Epworth to live with us when she was in the seventh grade. At the age of 12, she had lived with 11 different foster families. 
She had been to 11 different foster homes by the age of 12. As you can imagine, she had some attachment and trust issues from so much moving around miraculously. Despite the instability of her childhood, she had a very strong head on her shoulders. As she settled in at Epworth, she pleaded with the staff, please, can I stay here? Please, can I live here? Can this be my home until I graduate from high school? Can you imagine? Can you imagine not having a home? Not having that place to call home? Can you imagine wanting this institution to be your permanent residence? But that's the thing. Epworth is not an institution. It has a beautiful campus. It's a pretty charming place. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you've been there and you've seen it and you've visited and had a tour. One night while working at Epworth, they called me over to come help with a young girl who was crying. But when I got there, she wasn't crying. She was sobbing. We decided to take her outside and go for a walk to help calm her down. And when she got to the grassy area in the center of campus, she collapsed to her knees and wept. I didn't know what to do. So I got on my knees beside her and we talked. And we talked for a long time that night, sitting there in the wet grass. She told me about her family and about what had happened to her and why she had been taken away from her home. She had been abused. She had suffered the worst form of abuse for a young girl, for any girl. And the worst part about her story is that she's not alone. There were others, far too many others. There were other stories, far too many other stories of mistreatment. Most of the kids at Epworth are there because of circumstances not of their choosing, because of situations out of their control. You may not know it, but there are former Epworth kids living right here in Florence. I see them from time to time. You probably cross paths with them too without even knowing it. Maybe you sat by them at a ball game. Maybe you rubbed shoulders with them at the grocery store, but you didn't know who they were. You didn't know that your contribution to Epworth helped pay for their therapy. You didn't know that your donation to Epworth gave them a place to live until they were adopted by a family right here in Florence. And they didn't recognize you either. When they stood in line behind you at the mall, they didn't know they were in the presence of one of their guardian angels. They didn't know that you were a member of Central United Methodist Church and that you support Epworth. They didn't know that your support provided them with clothes to wear and a place to live until they graduated and ultimately took a job here in Florence. These are the success stories. We often never know the fruits of our offering, but these are the miracles. Follow me, if you will, through this illustration. If these are the success stories, keep in mind that these kids didn't start at the baseline with the same love and support and stability that many of us received. Consider for a moment, what would happen to these kids if they didn't have a place to go? 
What would happen if they found themselves in these unfortunate life situations and there was no effort to help them get back on their feet and set them on a better path? Where would they go? Who would they become? What kind of person would they end up? They'd be that child in school who can't pay attention because they've got so much going on at home. They'd be that kid who breaks into your car. They'd be that person on the nightly news. So you see how big this miracle becomes when you consider what could have been and what is because of Epworth. The kids face big problems, real struggles, and real challenges. When I was in my 20s, there was this phrase I heard over and over again. It went something like this. Case, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going to get a real job, Case? And my response is this. The Epworth kids are real. The kids in Africa are real. The kids who live in Habitat for Humanity houses are real. And the choices kids are real. These kids are capable of overcoming real challenges and real struggles. With our support, they can get set on a better path.